Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 85. Last week, I covered the tabernacle. You will sometimes see this called the Tent of Meeting, and even more rarely as the Tent of the Congregation. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering the next thing in Exodus, the Altar of the Burnt Offering. And with that, let's get started. After the tabernacle, the next stop in Exodus is this Altar of Burnt Offering. A couple of chapters later is the Altar of Incense. And since they're similar, I'll tackle them both in this episode and the next. In fact, I'll begin with altars in general, before getting to the two in Exodus. Altars in the Old Testament were typically made of earth or unwrought stone. The first one recorded in the Old Testament was built by Noah after the flood, as part of the Noahic Covenant. They were typically built in prominent places, such as the one built by Abraham in Genesis, the one where he was commanded by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. Isaac would later build one at Beersheba. Jacob would carry on the family tradition and build one at Shechem. Finally, Moses would build one after the victory of the Israelites over the Amalekites, presumably while wandering in Sinai. But then, after ascending on the mount and receiving his instructions from God, altars became both more permanent and portable. After Mount Sinai, it's only these two altars that are mentioned by name. But there are other altars strewn throughout the Old Testament. Built by Joshua, the various tribes, David, Ahaz, and other people. And mentioned by Ezekiel, altars to false deities torn down by Josiah. But before getting to those, first the two in Exodus. And, with a few exceptions, which I'll get to later, these two altars, the altar of the burnt offering and the altar of the incense, would far and away be the most used. After the tabernacle, they would be in the first and second temples, so essentially in use past the life of Christ, albeit certainly not the exact same pieces as those built in Exodus. But once again, I'm getting ahead of myself. First, let's go to the text. From Exodus chapter 27. You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and it shall be three cubits high. You shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all of its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net shall extend halfway down the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The pole shall be put through the rings, so that the pole shall be on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. They shall be made just as you were shown on the mountain. The first of the pair of altars is the altar of burnt offering, found in Exodus chapter 30, 
like many of the religious articles I've covered so far, it has various other names, just a few more than usual. You'll sometimes see it as the brazen altar in Exodus 39, the outer altar, the earthen altar, the great altar, and the table of the Lord in the book of Malachi, the last book in the Christian Old Testament. The burnt altar was located inside of the courtyard, but outside of the tent of meeting. And this makes sense, as you wouldn't want to be burning any large sacrifice inside a cloth tent. The courtyard was officially known as the Court of the Priests. On the altar, mammal and bird sacrifices were offered. The blood of the animals sacrificed would be applied to the horns of the altar in the tent, and the rest of the blood would be poured at the base of the altar of burnt offering. Also, portions of the animals sacrificed would be burned on this altar hence the name. All sacrifices had to be given with salt, likely meaning the part of the animal burned on the altar was seasoned with the preservative. More specifically, the fat of the animal would be placed on the altar so that when it was burned, it produced smoke. Also appears that after the altar offerings, the priests were allowed to consume some of the meat offerings, along with the wine that was the drink offering, this was likely in a fashion similar to the bread at the table of the bread of the presence, except without having the meat sit out for a week. And about those priests, they would don the priestly vestments before approaching the altar. Then they would conduct the offering, fire and all. Afterwards, the priest would remove the ashes and place them beside the altar. Then he would change out of the uniform. Only after that would he remove the ashes to a clean place outside of the camp. Like the table in the tent, the altar had accessories associated with it. And in the case of the altar, these are better thought of as utensils. They were made of either brass or bronze, as iron was not allowed on or even near the altar. But why? Well, iron was associated with war and therefore not holy enough for the holiest of places. The altar and its utensils were considered to be sacred, and the priest had to suit up and wash their hands before touching them, even for acts as mundane as removing the ashes from the altar. Leviticus chapter 6 implies that the fire in the altar was lit directly by the hand of God and was not permitted to go out. So, in this regard, like the eternal flame of the lampstand, no outside fire could be placed upon the altar. The same chapter also tells us that the burnt offerings would remain on the altar throughout the night before they could be removed. As described in Exodus, the first iteration of this altar was constructed to be mobile as the people wandered through the desert wilderness. In chapter 27, we're told that it was square, five cubits in both length and width, and three cubits tall. So, seven and a half feet square, and four and a half feet tall. In metric, that's two and a quarter meters square, by one and a third meters tall. Like most of the other articles, it was made of acacia wood, though some translations render it as shittim wood. But, you couldn't make an altar to contain fire out of just wood. Over top of the wood was bronze, but in some places you may see it listed as brass. More on that distinction in a minute. 
Either way, there was a layer of metal between the fire and the wood. On the altar's corners was something known as Koranot, which as best as can be translated, translates to horns. And the altar wasn't a solid piece, but better thought of as a frame for holding a metal grate. The grate was halfway down between the top and bottom of the bronze frame. It was on this grate that the wood for the perpetual fire would be placed, and on top of that, the sacrifice would be burned. Underneath the grate, there was a layer of dirt onto which the ashes from the fire and the sacrifices would fall. On the outside of the frame were metal rings. Through these, bronze-covered acacia wood poles would be passed so that the altar could be carried without the priests touching it. When Moses consecrated the tabernacle, when it was first built in the wilderness, he sprinkled the altar of burnt offering with anointing oil seven times. He also purified the four horns with the blood of a ram offered as a sin offering and poured the blood at the base of the altar, consecrating it. Moses would perform similar rituals on Aaron and sons, marking their official entry into the priesthood and allowing them to use all of the religious articles in the tabernacle. More on that later, in a later episode. When it was time to move the altar and then set it up, the task fell to the Levite Kohathite family. Before moving it, the priest would remove the ashes from the altar and place a purple cloth over the frame. Then, all of the instruments and vessels used in the sacrifices were placed on top of the purple cloth, and all of this was topped with a cover made from animal hide. Some sources, including the King James Version, claim this was the hide of a badger, but others, including the footnotes of the New Revised Standard Version, posit that the Hebrew word in the text has an unknown meaning, so we don't really know what type of animal hide. Later in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 16, we are told that following the rebellion at Korah, Eliezer converted the bronze censers used by the rebels into wide plates used to cover the altar. This was to serve as a warning that only priests from the line of Aaron may offer incense before the Lord. In a censer, the thing that Eliezer converted, was a container used to burn incense. And that's the altar that was associated with the portable tabernacle. But of course, like almost all of the other religious articles associated with the wandering Israelites, the use of an altar did not end when they gave up the tent. Solomon would have a burnt offering altar included with his temple. And like everything he did with this temple, it had to be bigger and better than the old. Second Chronicles chapter 4 gives us the dimensions as 20 cubits long and wide, and 10 cubits high. So its length and width were 30 feet in each direction and 15 feet high, just over 9 meters square and 4.5 meters high, far and away larger than the first version. But of course, the first one had to be portable, and Solomon's would not even be transportable on a modern tractor-trailer. It was so large, well, really tall, that it had to have a ramp leading up to the top, a ramp used by the priest to add both wood as fuel to the fire and for the sacrificial animals. 
But why a ramp and not steps? Think back to Exodus chapter 20. Just after God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, he also gave them the law concerning the altar. In the last verse of that chapter, he instructs Moses, You shall not go up by steps to my altar, so that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So, when you fashion an altar that's 15 feet high, as Solomon did, you need to add the appropriate ramp. And despite its size, there was at least one occasion when it wasn't large enough. When Solomon's temple was complete, it needed to be consecrated. On the day that was to occur, well, really the week, there were so many burnt offerings to be made that the new altar could not hold them all. So, being the wisest man in history, a solution was quickly arrived at. Solomon would have a space in the center of the court of the priests sanctified for burnt offerings. Which, of course, begs the question, how much were they trying to burn? According to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, it was 22,000 oxen and 120,000 head of sheep. So, close to 150,000 heads of livestock. That's a lot to burn, and they did it over seven days. Once again, depending on the translation, this new altar was either made of bronze or brass. The King James says brass, and both the New Revised Standard and the New International versions say bronze, which is worth a little sidebar. What's the difference between bronze and brass? Well, bronze is an alloy of copper and tin, but the mixture can be tweaked with other elements to bring out various properties. Overall, it's very hard, and like most hard materials, it's also very brittle. So hard that even today, it's used in industrial bearings. It's also very corrosion-resistant, and can be found in ship propellers. Bronze also conducts heat very well, a property that would benefit an altar that contained fire. Bronze is thought to have been first invented around 5000 BC, in a region that's part of the modern country of Iran, and it ushered in the Bronze Age, of course. On the other hand, brass is also an alloy of copper, but instead of tin, it contains zinc, and it's relatively soft, so malleable, so soft that it can be hammered and shaped into various thicknesses and pieces. It has a lower melting point than bronze, but here's the key piece. It's thought to have been invented around 500 BC, so well after the original altar, and even after Solomon's altar. If that's true, then you have to go with the bronze translation, Enough for the sidebar, we need to get back to the altar. Like the original, much smaller altar, underneath Solomon's version was a mound of dirt designed to catch the hot ashes as they fell through the metal grid. Several chapters later in 2 Chronicles, we're told that Asa would have the disrepaired altar restored. And for this to happen, the altar had to first go through a period of neglect. Asa was the king of Judah between 911 and 870 BC, and is commonly understood to be the great-grandson of Solomon, though some researchers dispute this familial link. Around 150 years later, the altar would be removed by Ahaz, 
who was the king of Judah between 732 and 716 BC, about nine rulers after Asa. Ahaz, quoting 2 Kings chapter 20, did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, his God. Despite this, the Gospel of Matthew lists Ahaz as being the great something grandfather of Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. The book of Luke does not include him, but that's a subject for a much later episode. Ahaz would have his own altar built on the Temple Mount, quoting again, When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet with Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. King Ahaz sent to the priest Uriah a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all of its details. The priest Uriah built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. Just so did the priest Uriah build it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. When the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar, went up on it, and offered his burnt offering and his grain offering, poured his drink offering, and dashed the blood of his offerings of well-being against the altar. The bronze altar that was before the Lord he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of his altar. End quote. Ahaz would then have his priest, Uriah, use the new altar, disregarding the old one. When Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, became the king of Judah, he would have Solomon's altar restored to its place in the temple. It's thought to have remained there for about 100 years until Judah was subjugated by the Babylonians. While the book of Jeremiah does not explicitly say that the Babylonians took the altar back to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, it is implied when it says that all bronze in the temple was broken up into pieces and carted east. Of course, the Babylonian captivity wasn't forever, and after their return to Jerusalem, according to Ezra chapter 3, the altar was rebuilt in the location where it once stood. But, other than the location, we're not given nearly the level of detail like we had in earlier parts of the narrative. Despite this, more detail can be found elsewhere. Talmudic writers fill in the blanks with their own exacting description of the altar during the Second Temple period. Once again, it's a perfect square and very large. The length and width are listed as 32 cubits each, so 48 feet are almost 15 meters long on each side. It was also 10 cubits high, so 15 feet or 4.5 meters meaning that the length and width were even larger than the one built by Solomon, while the height was the same. Once again, there was a ramp going up to the top, but this altar was neither bronze or brass, and was instead made of stone and earth. The corners, though, did have the horns as prescribed in the original instructional text. The Talmud also gives the dimensions of these, as each horn being one cubit square, so 18 by 18 inches, or just under half a meter. They were also five handbreadths tall, which would be about 15 inches, or 38 centimeters. The Book of Maccabees, and like I've covered before, but just as a refresher, 
The Catholic, Greek Orthodox, and Eastern Orthodox churches consider it canonical, while the Protestant churches consider it apocryphal. Whatever your particular take on it, it tells that when Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, the Seleucid king, plundered Jerusalem, he defiled the altar of burnt offering by erecting a pagan altar upon it. Shortly after that, Judas Maccabeus renewed the altar when he retook Jerusalem. But since the existing altar had been defiled by the blood of pagan sacrifices, the old stones of the altar were removed and replaced with new, unhewn ones. There was a catch, though, since the old, now defiled stones had been previously sanctified by the Jewish sacrifices. They could not be moved to an unclean place, so they remained on the Temple Mount, with the text saying that they should remain there until there should come a prophet to tell what to do with them. Not long after that episode, Herod the Great arrived on the scene, and part of the reason he is titled The Great is due to all of his immense construction projects, projects that included a renewed restoration of the Temple Mount. It's assumed that during this time, the altar was rebuilt. It, along with so much more on the Temple Mount, would finally be destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Fast forward 2,000 or so years later to today, where, in the Islamic Dome of the Rock, on the Temple Mount, well, really directly underneath the Golden Dome, which is commonly believed to occupy the site of the Old Temple, at this precise site there is a rough projection of the natural rock known as the Foundation Stone. This stone, while not a perfect square or rectangle, but along its longest measurements, it's 60 feet in length, 50 feet in width, and about 4 feet tall. So, 18 meters long, 15 meters wide, and just over 1 meter tall. This is the rock that the Islamic temple is named after. But, in Judaism, it's thought to either be the location of the altar of burnt offering, or the Holy of Holies, depending on who you ask. And that's it for the altar outside of the tent. But there's another one, the altar of incense, found in the tent. Unfortunately, I don't have enough time to dive into that altar, and it will have to wait until next week. Join me then. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to the comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.